Genetics isn't always black and white, and the emotions and decisions surrounding genetic testing can be even more complex. Welcome to Patient Stories with Gray Genetics. I'm Eleanor Griffith, a certified genetic counselor and the founder of Gray Genetics, a telehealth genetic counseling and consulting service. It seems like there are constantly headlines in the news about genetics, but few news stories focus on the patient experience. At Gray Genetics, we are collecting patient stories, your stories. Every other Tuesday, we share an interview with a patient or a genetic counselor. Today, I'm interviewing Christina Kresge. Christina Kresge is a certified and licensed genetic counselor. She has worked in the genetics department of Rutgers Newark for eight years, ever since she graduated from Sarah Lawrence College in 2010 with a Master's of Science in Human Genetics. She received her Bachelor of Science in Diagnostic Genetic Sciences from the University of Connecticut in 2008. She works primarily in pediatric and adult genetics, but also practices cancer and prenatal genetics. She is the treasurer of the Human Genetics Association of New Jersey. Hi, Christina. Thanks for coming on the podcast. Hi, Eleanor. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. So you have been at the same job for quite a long time. <laughs> mm, I have. <laughs> I'm, I'm curious. So what, even though I actually worked with you for a while, I've never heard what drew you to genetic counseling in the first place. And I'm also curious what has kept you for so long at the same institution. So I remember actually in high school, um, I took biology freshman year, um, and I liked it. But when we got to the section on genetics, I loved it. Like I, it sounds really nerdy, but I would save my genetics homework for last because it was like a reward for doing the rest of my homework. Like I just, I loved it. Um, and when I started looking into the different kind of career paths, uh, that, that the field of genetics offered, I knew that I didn't really want to be just in a lab. Um, so when I read about genetic counseling, that was, it just kind of seemed like a good fit. Um, so I did my undergrad, uh, in, in actually in lab genetics, uh, and then went on to get my master's. Um, and then when I got offered the job over at what used to be UMDNJ, uh, it actually probably wouldn't necessarily have been my first choice to go into pediatrics. Um, but since I started the, the, you know, the career there, uh, in pediatrics, I found that I absolutely love it. It's interesting. It's different every day. You see things that you only read about in textbooks. Um, and I think particularly with the patient population I'm working with, uh, it's very rewarding work because, um, you really get to kind of help, uh, sort of an underserved population navigate a kind of tricky health system and, and, you know, provide the best care possible. So I find it to just be really enjoyable. I really, really like it. How much of your work is working in pediatrics versus with adult patients? And what is your role actually like? Because you work with geneticists too, right? Yep. So uh, we work closely with um, our geneticists. So we actually have three geneticists uh, at our institution. Um, and we, uh, so what we'll do is kind of go in uh, into the session um, and gather a lot of the information uh, and kind of work hand-in-hand with the geneticist to decide what testing makes the most sense um, to kind of get to the bottom of what might be going on with with the patient, the particular patient. Um, And I would say we do mostly pediatrics. Maybe 50% of our caseload is pediatrics, uh, maybe 
15% or so would be our adult genetics patients, um, which kind of come with a whole different host of issues. Um, and then I do a bit of prenatal and a bit of cancer, uh, but pediatric probably makes up about half of what I do. What are some cases that have really stuck with you? So there's a few cases that really kind of come to mind when I, when I think about you know, the, the most rewarding cases or, or the, the cases that really kind of keep you up at night. Um, so the first case that really comes to mind is the first patient I ever saw by myself. Um, and she was this young woman in her maybe early to mid twenties. Um, and she had a family history of a condition called myotonic dystrophy, um, which is something that affects the nerves and, and the, the muscles and kind of leads to a progressive weakness. Uh, and it tends to come on a little bit later in life. So at the time that I saw her, she had no symptoms whatsoever. Um, but it didn't necessarily mean that, that she was off the hook. So, uh, you know, even, even though we weren't seeing any symptoms, it, it didn't mean anything in terms of whether or not she had the condition. Her father had the condition, so we knew that there was a 50-50 chance that she would have it. Um, and it's a particularly important case uh, or condition to kind of find out about because this patient was recently married and getting ready to start a family with her new husband. Um, and the particular condition that she has, myotonic dystrophy, is one that can get much worse when being passed from a mother to a child. Uh, there's a what they call a congenital form, so a form where a child is born with muscle weakness and with nerve issues. Uh, so she was very concerned about the risk of having a child who would um, have the effects of this condition for their entire life. Um, lives. So, and did she, when she came to you, was she aware of that possibility, both to pass it on that it might be more severe? Yes. So that's why she came. Exactly. So she was she had kind of resigned herself to the fact that there was a chance that she might be symptomatic like her father. Um, but fortunately, her father is relatively mildly affected, even into his 60s. He's still um, certainly walking and functioning at a, at a very high level um, physically. So I think she had kind of already accepted that that was a possibility, um, but she was more concerned about the risk for her future offspring. So we ended up doing the genetic testing for her, uh, and it turned out that she was, uh, a, I would say, a carrier. So she was affected, although she hadn't started manifesting symptoms yet. Um, so I remember being so nervous to tell her, and she had kind of gotten emotional during our first session, so I really was prepared for kind of a, a breakdown um, when she came in to discuss the results. Um, but she came in with her husband, she sat down, and I told her that, that uh, you know, that she had um, the mutation that would cause the condition. And she was very strong and kind of, I think, had already sort of prepared herself for it. Um, so I was actually a little bit surprised by how, um, how ready she was for the news. Uh, but she and her husband ended up going on to um, do in vitro fertilization, and they were able to check each embryo before implanting them uh, to see whether or not the embryo was affected with the myotonic dystrophy. Um, they ended up implanting two embryos, which weren't affected, uh, and they now have twin girls. And they actually send me a Christmas card every year, and it's so much fun to see um, you know, how, how they're growing up and how well they're doing. And, uh, it's just a lot of fun to kind of see 
the outcome and, and get that follow-up. Yeah, that's a really happy ending to a story, which we don't always hear in genetics, although they're there. Yes, yeah. <laughs> they are there. <laughs> Did you ever meet with any of her other family members? Did she have siblings who were at risk? She was an only child, but she was very close with a lot of her cousins um, who also had affected parents. So I did end up seeing two of her cousins, um, one of whom tested positive and one negative. Um, So the one who tested negative, that was great. And she really didn't have to think about going down that road with the in vitro fertilization. Um, The other cousin last I heard uh, was going down that road because she did test positive. Um, I never got to hear the follow-up from that one, but um, it's kind of nice to know uh, that the family's close enough to be sharing that information. So not only did I help, you know, did, was was my patient, the initial patient kind of helped, but, uh, you know, we, we were able to prevent the congenital form of the disease in, in other branches of the family too. What's another case that has stuck with you? I feel like it will be hard to top that one in terms of happiness. <laughs> <laughs> it might be hard to top that in terms of happiness, but there are definitely some, uh, that have also kind of, um, stuck with me. Uh, so one patient, um, I recently became involved in our metabolic clinic. So we follow patients with rare, um, inborn errors of metabolism, uh, which basically means they are missing certain enzymes to break down uh, different chemicals in the body. Um, So we do a lot with newborn screening, so we see a lot of babies, but I had an adult patient um, who is now, let me think, he just turned 41, uh, and he um, had been followed in our clinic for maybe 15 to 20 years. Uh, and we knew that he had something metabolic and he was definitely, you know, getting a little bit worse. It's an, again, a progressive condition, but we had no idea, uh, what it was. Um, so we, we had kind of a, an idea of what category it might fall under. Um, but we couldn't pinpoint which condition it was. And we had done tons and tons of testing, never figured it out. Um, so eventually we were able to kind of, do a little bit more profound genetic testing. We ended up having to do a skin biopsy on him, but we eventually found out that he has an ultra rare condition called sialidosis. Um, so he's our only patient in the clinic with sialidosis, the only one we've ever seen. Um, but what he's found actually since being diagnosed is that there are other people in the world, of course, with, with this condition. Um, he has the adult onset form, so it does, it does tend to be a bit milder, but certainly something that's, um, affecting his life a lot. Uh, but what he's found is that through social media, through Facebook, he's been able to connect with other adults and children and families, um, who have been touched by sialidosis. So, it's really uh, been a nice outlet for him. You know, I think it's tough to get a diagnosis that you know there isn't really a whole lot you can do about, but I think the silver lining was him being able to connect with other people who are in the same boat. And he's actually working on starting a foundation. Uh, so he's in the, it's in the infant stages, so it's brand new, but he is um, kind of connecting and, and he's planning on going to this, conference for kind of the group of diseases that he's a part of. So he's definitely feeling a bit more, I think, plugged in and it's helped a little bit with his, his mental well-being. Are there other people in his family who have the same condition or no? No. So he's the only one. Um, 
And it turns out that his parents were from kind of the same uh, isolated geographic region in Ecuador, um, which is possibly the reason why uh, he's affected. Um, it turns out that the carrier frequency must be a bit higher in this in this particular uh, village in Ecuador. So that's the reason that um, you know that that it was uh, seen in him. He does have a brother uh, who's doing fine. Um, and as the brother is going forward and having children, it's information that's been helpful for him as well. Um, we did test the brother and he's not even a carrier. So, um, that's a bit of reassurance for him and his wife and his, and his children. And how does it affect his life having this rare metabolic disorder, even though it may be less severe than for some other people with the same condition? So the particular, uh, features of his condition involve, um, some vision loss. Uh, so he still retains some vision, but he is definitely having a little bit more difficulty getting around than he used to. Um, he also has these kind of, they would almost look like ticks. Uh, it's called myoclonus, um, where it's, it's kind of uncontrolled movement. So, uh, and it affects his speech and, and his handwriting and kind of the fine motor skills. Um, he does have some seizures as well, although they are fairly well controlled with medications, but the, um, those kind of tick-like behaviors are something that, uh, that we're having a hard time getting under control. And unfortunately, because of the progressive nature of the condition, it's something that's um, probably likely to get worse rather than better. And is it a condition for which there is enzyme replacement therapy available? So not yet. Uh, I think, again, because of the rarity of the condition, that it's one of these orphan diseases that just isn't well-funded enough. Um, I uh -huh. think, you know, from a pharmaceutical perspective, it's not, uh, it's not, I, I hate to say that it's not worth it. Um, but, you know, as drug companies are choosing which diseases they want to target, they're going to choose uh, the ones that have the most affected people. So um, this one, he tells me that he's the first patient ever to be described in South America. I'm not 100% sure that that's true, but that's the information that he has. Well, just because maybe it's most prevalent there, but they haven't actually described them. Right, right. <laughs> and I mean, it's been observed all over the world, I suppose. I think he's in, yeah. he's been in touch with maybe 10 or 15 other people who are affected with the adult onset form. Um but, uh, you know, it's certainly rare enough that it's probably not really worth a pharmaceutical company's time to, to target, although I'm hopeful that that'll change. And there is some research suggesting that in animal models there might be something, but it's uh, really, really far down the pipeline. So, When we were talking before the interview, you mentioned that you had a case where the family discovered something unexpected over the course of testing. Yeah, so this was... The first time I had ever encountered anything like this, um, it was really a surprise. Um, so we uh, have kind of a routine genetic testing called microarray that we do for almost every pediatric patient that walks through our door. Um, and it's, you know, we're usually just looking for extra or missing bits of genetic information. But for this particular patient, uh, so it was a little boy, I believe he was maybe nine months old, uh, and he was born with... Um, like club feet and kind of a similar defect of his wrists. Uh, and he had broken some bones, which is really unusual for a baby that small. Um, so he wasn't really mobile. Uh, so it's unusual for a child to break bones like that. Um, 
So we were suspicious of a, of a condition that affects the bones. There's one called osteogenesis imperfecta. Um, but when we saw that he also had those uh, kind of, we call them joint contractures or the, the club feet and kind of club hand deformities, um, we were suspicious of one particular condition called syndrome. Um, so syndrome is recessive, which means that both parents have to be carriers in order to have a child affected with a condition. Um, and it's a very rare condition. Again, it's the only time I've ever seen it. So, uh, this is kind of one of those things in pediatrics that, that you might read about, but you're, you know, you, you think you're never going to see it. But anyway, so we saw this child and we ordered our chromosome microarray to see if, uh, if maybe there was some kind of uh, deletion or, or something that, that could explain where this condition was coming from. Um, so what we found, actually, instead of finding a deletion or anything like that, was that uh, there was a great deal of uh, genetic information that was identical from the mother and the father. Um, so this is something that we find often, um, and it's something that we often expect. So if uh, you know, if, if we know that the parents are first cousins, we know to expect a finding like this. Um, but we did not know it in this case uh, at all. And actually, it turns out that the parents were even closer than first cousins. They were second degree relatives, which is uh, like an uncle, niece, aunt, nephew kind of relationship or a half sibling kind of relationship. Um, and I was shocked. Uh, going back, I was kind of looking at the family history saying, how could this happen? They both come from these, you know, lovely intact families. They're, you know, they're, her parents had maybe six or seven children together. His parents had maybe four or five children together. And I said, how, how could this happen? You know, this, this really was shocking. Um, and it was a family, uh, that, you know, was originally from Newark, as far as I know. Uh, so it's not, uh, a cultural norm for um, any kind of uh, interfamily marriage or anything like that. So it was it was really surprising. Um, and when I brought the family back in, I really didn't know how to handle that. So uh, in terms of the genetic diagnosis, we were eventually able to to pinpoint a gene and uh, determine what the genetic finding was that caused the child to have this syndrome. Um, but when I brought the family back in to discuss it, I really felt like at a loss. Um, so she told me that she was no longer with her partner. Uh, and I, what I ultimately decided to do was to tell her that one of the tests indicated that there was some degree of relationship between her and the father of her baby. Um, and I tried to kind of leave it open-ended for her to say, what is the relationship? Um, but instead she said, oh yeah, you know, I had kind of heard that maybe his cousin is my second cousin or something like that. Um, so she never did ask how closely they were related. Um, but what I ended up deciding to do was to tell her that if she and, and the partner, uh, ended up having more children together, you know, people get back together, it happens, um, that there would be a 25% chance to have a child with this condition and also a, a significantly increased chance to have a child with another recessive condition. Um, and then, uh, a few months down the road, uh, we ended up seeing a, a different patient that was somehow related to this family. And she said, oh, well, you know, the, the patient's grandfather, in addition to having these six children, uh, so the patient's mother and her five siblings, also had 26 other children, well. all of whom lived in Newark. <laughs> 
<laughs> so that was a surprise, and I assume it, you know, had something to do with how you could sort of accidentally have have children with someone who's your half brother. So, um, you know, that was a, a definitely a surprise, not something that I expected, uh, and I I still. That one still kind of haunts me because I'm I'm not a I'm not exactly sure if I handled that the right way or if I should have just come right out and told her what you know how closely they're related. But it's one that that always you know that I'll, I will never forget that case. Yeah, I think maybe I was working in Newark when that happened. Unless that just sounds really familiar. The discussion about how to tell what, yeah, like the significance really isn't specifically how closely related they are. It's about the regions of homozygosity. <laughs> so really you gave her the medically appropriate information. Um, but I would say that her lack of follow-up might have suggested that she didn't really want to hear that information. So That was kind of how I felt too. So that was why I decided not to press the issue and you know, not to say, actually, you're way more closely related than distant cousins, you know. Um, and I actually did have a little bit of a follow-up, uh, that made my heart sink. Um, again, I'm involved with the newborn screening program and we got, uh, a baby who came across for a rare autoimmune condition called severe combined immunodeficiency. Um, they call it bubble boy syndrome. So it's kind of, uh, basically your body can't fight off anything. Um, so I didn't think anything about the last name. It's pretty common, but... Eventually, uh, I learned that the baby had an older brother with syndrome. And then when I thought about the name, I said, oh my gosh, that's the same family. The severe combined immunodeficiency is a rare recessive condition. And I panicked thinking that I, you know, I, I should have told her how closely related they were. But I finally eventually found out that uh, the the new baby did have a different father. So it it didn't end up being someone who was related to her by blood. It was a different father. And again, I think just unfortunately, genetically unlucky, or maybe it was one of the other 26. You know, it's hard, hard to say. I guess it does kind of bring up duty to warn. I usually think about that in terms of, for instance, an identified hereditary cancer mutation in a family where people aren't talking to one another. It's, mm-hmm. it's not very often that one relationship between two closely related people who therefore have a lot of regions of homozygosity is going to suggest an increased risk for other family members or people in the community to potentially also have a similar increased risk. Right, right. Yeah, it's something, again, that we don't come across very often. We've seen it maybe once or twice, uh, aside from that case. But um, it, it can definitely kind of haunt you, you know? So newborn screening is something that's done in every state, but in New Jersey, it all specifically goes through your institution. Is that right? Right. So um, every baby born in the state of New Jersey gets a little heel stick. Uh, They take five spots of dried blood and they send it off to the Department of Health. Um, The Department of Health is able to screen for 55 different conditions on those five dried blood spots. Um, and they're actually getting ready to add five more. So uh, they're, they're getting a lot of information from just that little bit of blood. Um, so about 20 to 25 of the conditions, uh, if a baby comes back screen positive, uh, those conditions get referred to us, and we then do the follow-up testing to see if it's a true positive or a false positive. Uh, and in the cases of true positives, we do uh, go on to follow the families and, and you know, 
uh, we get involved in treatment, the metabolic conditions or the newborn screening conditions by definition uh, are supposed to be treatable in some way. Um, and most of the conditions we screen for are conditions that you can really avoid a lot of the medical or developmental complications by detecting them early and starting treatment before a child is symptomatic. Okay. And I think you'd mentioned before when we were preparing for the interview that there was a newborn screening case that came up right before you went on maternity leave, which of course hit you in a different way since you were pretty close to having newborn screening done for your own first child. <laughs> it definitely did. It really, um, yeah, it, it kind of hit close to home. Uh, so we had a baby who is less than two months older than my son. Uh, so we picked him up on newborn screening. Um, he has a condition called homocystinuria. Uh, so his body uh, lacks an enzyme to break down something called homocysteine. It can build up in his blood, uh, and it is toxic to the brain uh, if levels are high and stay high. Um, so it definitely uh, kind of spooked me a little bit just to see this child. So, and it turns out that he truly does have the condition. Um, fortunately, again, we were able to pick it up early. Uh, and he's being treated and his levels actually just the past two weeks have finally normalized. So they're beautiful. Developmentally, he's doing great. The family is really, you know, doing a great job because it is kind of tough to, to regulate a child's diet, but they're, they're doing great. Um, but I, it definitely made me feel differently. Um, so when I was pregnant, just, uh, kind of seeing, you know, seeing the way that things could be be missed during pregnancy. So, you know, as a genetic counselor, we always talk about uh, doing preconception genetic testing. So we're all carriers for maybe seven or nine genetic conditions, and we recommend doing that testing before you even become pregnant. Um, and I, I hate to say it, but I was a bit of a hypocrite and I did not do it for myself. Uh, so when I was... That somehow really surprises me. I remember some conversations with you were more asides when different cases would come up in case conference and I was certain that you had all this I, I would have figured you'd had it done like years in advance <laughs> you know I and I think I it just it happened so fast it was we were kind of thinking about starting a family and then boom I was pregnant so that I you know it just felt like a this is going to happen someday and then all of a sudden you know I was I was pregnant so it was uh but I I do feel uh, silly for having been so unprepared and for not having taken my own advice because, you know, testing before pregnancy is much less stressful than testing during pregnancy. <laughs> um, so when I, uh, and we actually didn't even have a, you know, we wanted to do the whole, the, the fanciest carrier testing available, of course. Genetic um, counselors always ever test. <laughs> always. <laughs> um, so, and we didn't have an account set up with one of those fancy labs. So I did actually have to go for prenatal genetic counseling, which felt also a little bit ridiculous. Did you fly under the radar and pretend you weren't a genetic counselor? Or is it impossible because it's such a small world and they already knew you? So I really had thought about it. Um, and I, it, <laughs> 
there was a, a particular genetic counselor who we do work with their prenatal group, but um, I, you know, I was kind of hoping it wasn't her because she knows me and I know her, and <laughs> <laughs> but only kind of by phone. So she, you know, she walks out into the waiting room and she says hi, I'm Laura. And I was like, oh my gosh, like now she's totally going to know who I am. (laughs) So we sat down and, you know, of course I, you know, I said, I'm a genetic counselor. And she's like, oh, you're Christina Bond. Cause I was using my, my maiden name, uh, or using my married name, but she knows me by my, my maiden name. So, uh, we, uh, sat down and got to talking and, you know, she did my carrier testing. And lo and behold, a couple weeks later, she calls and it turns out that I'm a carrier for cystic fibrosis, um, which I didn't need to overtest. I could have just done that myself and found (laughs) out. (laughs) Um, But so, you know, then I'm 12 weeks pregnant and freaking out because cystic fibrosis is a pretty common condition. Uh, About 4% of the Caucasian population are carriers. Um, and my husband is like so white. Yeah, I was like, oh my gosh, he's totally going to be like rounding his four five percent. He's like really pasty. Exactly, he's really pasty, <laughs> blonde hair, blue eyes. I was like, he's going to be a carrier, and we're going to, you know, we're going to freak out here. Um, so it really was something that, as a genetic counselor, when you see that a patient's a carrier, it's like, what's the big deal? You know, like I've counseled hundreds of patients for being carriers for cystic fibrosis or sickle cell anemia or something like that. Um, but all of a sudden being in those shoes and realizing how nerve wracking it is to wait for those results, um, you know, and just to, to kind of think about what will we do and we don't have, you know, any, any real information with, it's all speculation. What will we do if he's a carrier? What will we do if I have an amnio? What if, you know, what will we do if, if the baby's affected? So we were really stewing and really kind of freaking out, um, and, you know, then we started talking about future pregnancies and it, it was just, it was like this rabbit hole and we really uh, were freaking out. But anyways, we did the, of course, the Cadillac of testing for my husband uh, and he saved the day. He's not a carrier. So um, we didn't have to, to go down that road, but it definitely uh, kind of was a unique uh, insight into, into what your patients go through because it's just something that you don't realize when you're on the other end. How did your husband react to this? Because I think he's an engineer. He's not a genetic counselor, right? That's correct. So at least for you, you weren't trying to learn the scientific information while grappling with what the results meant. But for him, did he already have a good understanding of what cystic fibrosis was and carrier testing or not so much? So he actually had gone to like elementary school with a girl who had cystic fibrosis. And he had seen kind of the struggles that she went through. And uh, it was a condition that actually we had talked about in the hypothetical before I got pregnant, before I knew I was a carrier, um, just because I knew it was a genetic condition he was familiar with. It was, I was kind of testing him in terms of what would you do if, like, you know, if, if we had a child with Down syndrome, if we had a child with cystic fibrosis. Um, and prior to becoming pregnant, he had said that uh, he would definitely want to terminate a pregnancy affected with cystic fibrosis. And I was a little bit surprised that he had such a um, kind of hard stance on it. Uh, but when we found out I was a carrier, and I remember just staying up at night, and you know we were having this long conversation about what would we do, and I, you know I was like, well, I guess you know if, if the pregnancy is affected, we would terminate. Um, and he like freaked out, and he's like, how could you say that? You know, he's already here and everything. So it was really kind of a, uh, you know, a a big change. And I think that was another example of when, 
um, you know, how different it is when it's hypothetical or when it's not, you know, when it's, it's not you or, you, you know, you're not there, um, that once we actually had this baby, uh, you know, it was this baby who, you know, had come to be that it was really the thought of terminating for him, you know, was, was not even really an option at that point. Yeah. It's interesting how bad we are at predicting how we'll feel, like not even what decision we'll make, but how we'll feel in a given situation. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. It really is, is surprising. Um, but, you know, kind of all through the prenatal course and then actually af- after having had my son um, with the metabolic clinic, we're always drawing blood on babies and things like that. And I've always thought, like, again, what's the big deal? The kid isn't going to remember, like, you know, because parents get really kind of nervous and upset that you have to draw blood on their babies. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it was one of those things that I never understood. Um, but now as a parent, you know, I... I freak out when my kid gets his vaccine. So it's like, you know, thinking that that's kind of another one of these, like understanding your patients on a different level. Um, just it, it really has changed things a lot to be on the patient side of it. Yeah. And how old is your son now? Uh, he'll be six months tomorrow. Oh, milestone. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We're finally getting ready to start food. So that's exciting. How has prenatal or pediatric counseling been different for you now that you're a parent and you've been through that experience? It's been really different, I think, just to be able to relate to your patients in a completely different way. And I think, you know, I I try, of course, you know, to, to not necessarily bring my information. And so, you know, if even if you're seeing a patient who has a kid your age, you know, you're not really often going to be like, oh, I have a son your age. Um, but, you know, it just makes it feel uh, a lot more relatable. Like, And I think it allows you a new level of empathy, I guess, you know, to, to think about what it would be like if it was your child. And I think the complexity of a child who is having a pediatric workup for some reason, um, you know, whether it's developmental delay or, or any kind of health issue, but uh, kind of, you know, I think as clinicians, we tend to see the health issues and not the child. And I think as a parent, the love you have for a child really kind of, uh, it, it, I don't want to say it supersedes the, the health issues, but they're so wrapped up in each other. And I think, uh, it definitely, um, how can I say it, (laughs) that, that it, it really just, you know, it, it changes things to see, I, I think I'm more able to see the child as a, you know, as a whole child and not just like a medical case. Talking about person first language is a big thing in genetics that it's like a child with a condition instead of like a cystic fibrosis child or a Down syndrome child. But it sounds like just having a child and especially having put yourself in the shoes very briefly of having a child with cystic fibrosis um, makes you look that differently. <laughs> it really is like the person does come first and then the health issues are one factor. Yeah, it really does. It really does. So you've been a genetic counselor for almost eight years in Newark. Is the job like you thought it would be? I know that you said you initially didn't want to go into pediatrics and then you've really enjoyed it. Did you anticipate staying there so long? 
So when I first went in, I would say no. I thought it was uh, possibly a transition job until I could go into prenatal or or whatever I ultimately decided to do. Um, But I think as, uh, you know, as I've gotten to work with the patient population um, and in pediatrics where things are kind of always different and interesting and, uh, and just fascinating, I think it... I love this patient population, and I don't think I would want to work with any other patient population. Um, you know, it's a a community that's definitely underserved, but they their health needs are you know just the same as as any other populations. And I think the work um, is rewarding because you're helping people navigate a system that's really tricky to navigate. Um, you know, sometimes even as a healthcare provider, I find battling insurance companies and, uh, you know, kind of the, the day-to-day issues facing us in medicine are, are tricky. Um, and I think for someone who lacks education or support or, uh, you know, the ability to communicate effectively, we have a lot of Spanish-speaking patients in, or Arabic-speaking patients in our population, um, it's such a hard system to navigate. Uh, pretty much, I mean, nearly impossible in some cases. And so, I think that, uh, you know, it's one of the the kind of roles that I didn't expect to have, but I love, um, is as a patient advocate and really making sure that, uh, you know, my patients get everything they need. Uh, and, you know, I think we often do things that wouldn't necessarily fall under the job title of genetic counselor, um, but feel like they are really significantly improving, uh, you know, the life of our patient in, in one way or another, whether it's working with school systems or even just things like arranging transportation for, for families who wouldn't normally be able to do it or, um, you know, helping in, in any way we can. And, and I f- feel that even though it's maybe not exactly what I signed up for, it's uh, something that really feels good and feels like, uh, you know, like it's making a difference. Yeah, that's interesting that you say that being about being a patient advocate, because I actually interviewed Caroline Lieber. And I don't know if her interview will come out before after yours. But her main focus was really patient advocacy that after all these years, that's kind of what has stuck with her and was most meaningful to her is being a patient advocate. I could definitely see that I'm sure she was is probably a great patient advocate. And it it's, yeah, again, I think something that you can't even really teach, you know, it's not something that you learn in genetic counseling school exactly. Um, but it's something that kind of comes with the territory and, and, uh, you know, is really, feels like really making a difference. Um, what do you wish that, let's say the administration (laughs) at Rutgers knew about genetics and genetic counseling? So that's like the administration of the state of New Jersey, because in an earlier rendition of the hospital, you are more connected to University Hospital, which is no more, which is really like a state institution. Right. Um, And that's an interesting question. I think uh, because genetics is not a big revenue generator, we are not even just overlooked, but maybe uh, not, um, you know, possibly in danger of not surviving, um, you know, our department. Uh, and I think it's unfortunate because it really can make a difference in terms of treatment and medical management and screening for other complications, or even just, uh, you know, for the well-being of the patient and the family. I think 
an answer can be so helpful and so important to, to some families that even though, you know, we spend a lot, a lot of time with the patient and we don't bill very much and we don't bring in all that much money that I do think it's a really worthwhile service um, and a service that uh, helps not only the individual patient, but their entire family. And I think, um, you know, that's one of the things that's often overlooked, but the involvement of the whole family and, you know, either preventing disease or uh, managing disease in other relatives is something that really probably benefits the community as a whole. So, yeah, I guess when patients are referred on from, let's say, primary care practice to other specialists within Rutgers, I'm guessing most often reimbursement for the institution goes up. <laughs> Whereas when someone's referred to genetics, maybe reimbursement starts to go down. Right. Or just in terms of how much income the hospital is able to generate as opposed to how much they're having to pay for staff. Right. Right. And I think that could definitely be the case. And we're not necessarily the people that are ordering MRIs or tests that the hospital is going to benefit from financially. And we're sending all of our genetic testing to labs that have nothing to do with the facility. So, uh, you know, we're, we're definitely, you know, in terms, we're probably at the point where our doctors maybe don't quite uh, bring in enough revenue to even justify their salaries, which sounds terrible, but, um, you know, and, and I know that our geneticists are often, uh, kind of getting a hard time for, you know, how many patients they're seeing and they should be increasing them. But I think one of the nice things, um, in genetics is that we have the ability to really sit down and take our time with a family. And I think, that's another service that we're able to provide for families, even when we can't do anything, even when we can't really help, is sometimes giving that opportunity to feel heard uh, really seems to make an impact for, for some families as well, just to feel like you know someone in the medical community is listening to them and thinking about them and, and everything. Yeah. What would you want people to know who are listening who have thought about seeking out genetic counseling for a pediatric condition in the family or possible adult genetic condition or prenatal screening, um, but are just hesitant to actually go to see a genetic counselor? I think I completely understand why, uh, you know, why someone might be hesitant. I think genetic information can be heavy. Um, I think it's uh, something that sometimes you just can't exactly prepare for. And kind of like you had said before, that you don't necessarily know how you're going to feel in any given situation. But I think that um, it's definitely worthwhile to seek out a genetics professional. Um, And we are trained in kind of providing information uh, in a way that allows you to make the decision that's right for you. So I think um, just seeing someone who's going to kind of help you weigh the pros and cons of actually pursuing testing. Um, I do definitely have patients come in sometimes who uh, find themselves not quite ready yet. Uh, And that's okay. It's okay to be not quite ready for uh, any answers that genetic testing might bring or any lack thereof. Um, But I think just kind of taking that step to sit down with someone and kind of talk it out and make sure you have all of the information available to, to make an informed decision is it's a worthwhile thing to do. Um, even if you will ultimately decide not to pursue, you know, further genetic testing or anything like that. 
Well, thank you very much for coming on the podcast and talking to me and sharing all of these stories, including your own. Thank you for having me. It's really been a pleasure. If you'd like to share your story, send an email to podcast at graygenetics.com. If you enjoy listening to patient stories, please take two seconds to rate us on iTunes and consider taking 30 more seconds to leave us a review on iTunes. Those ratings and reviews really do help us to reach more people and to share your stories with a broader audience. You can also easily share any of our episodes through social media. You can find Gray Genetics on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn. The information contained in this podcast does not constitute medical advice and is also not a substitute for genetic counseling. Neither Gray Genetics nor any of its guests makes any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the statements or any information contained in this podcast. Evaluation of an individual's personal and family health history is a crucial part of genetic counseling and any recommendations.